Good early afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Welcome to our F.A. Hayek Auditorium. Uh, my name is Jim Harper. I'm Director of Information Policy Studies here at Cato. And we're going to talk about information today, that's for sure. Uh, our panel's called Just Give Us the Data, Prospects for Putting Government Information to Revolutionary New Uses. The subject, obviously, is transparency. I want to talk just a little bit about that, talk around the subject before I bring up our excellent panel. Um, what are we talking about when we talk about transparency? Uh, things should be visible. Things should be see-through. Uh, essentially, I think transparency is a means to an end because we're really, what we're really talking about is oversight. We want access to data so that we can do public oversight. Um, it's interesting to, to think about it this way. Think about it in constitutional terms. Uh, we have a constitutional structure where the Congress, the House, and the Senate are invited to oversee the executive branch, and the judiciary oversees both. For those to work, to work well, for our separation of powers to work well, the public needs to oversee all three. And so the, the formal mechanisms of oversight need to have informal mecha mechanisms of oversight. And we're really talking about uh, moving into a post-media, that is a post-formal media environment, where access to data will allow true public oversight, a spontaneously ordered oversight of, of the formal mechanisms of our, of our government. So we are talking about, about true public oversight if data is available to all of us to use. Obviously, things are happening in the transparency area, and, and, and very good things. Obviously, uh, our president-elect, uh, Barack Obama, uh, was, a, was a leader on transparency as a young senator. One of his, one of his first and most important, I think, efforts in the, in the Senate was the Coburn-Obama bill, formerly known as the Federal Funding Accountability and Transparency Act, which formed the basis for usaspending.gov. Uh, this is a website that reveals all entities receiving federal funds uh, as, uh, as uh, contractors or as grantees. The change.gov transition website uh, announced on Friday a policy that they would post all documents that are submitted to them, uh, subject to certain formalities. Um, this is an administration that is committed to transparency. And I'll note as an aside that John Podesta's memo establishing this policy was posted online. This is, this is wonderful transparency and I suppose meta-transparency as well. Uh, I must confess my self-interest in the, in the topic today. I run a transparency website called WashingtonWatch.com. Uh, I use government data mostly from the legislative branch, from the Thomas system. Uh, I type in some data because it's not available in useful formats. Um, but even with the rudimentary work that, that we have on Washington Watch, uh, I've had a million visitors this year, and that's, that's really terrific. Imagine what we could do if there were lots and lots of very, very good information available to the public. Obviously, others working in the transparency area are doing much better. Uh, OMB watches fedspending.org site, and I believe I got the – everybody mix up, mixes up the dots, .org, .com, et cetera. It's fedspending.org. Uh, has had 10 million searches, I think, as of this, this summer or spring, uh, and it's a, it's a website devoted to revealing where, where federal dollars go. Uh, the Center for Responsive Politics Open Secrets database is, I'd say, a standard reference for people looking into um, where campaign money comes from and where, where it goes. Uh, the Sunlight Foundation is, is an incredible resource, a real incubator for lots and lots of new ideas uh, about transparency and working with uh, government data. Again, 
transparency, in my view, is a means to an end, uh, and that is oversight. And there's always going to be an ideological component to oversight because people oversee with a particular purpose in mind. And so I just, I'll just, I think it's fair to just reveal uh, folks' ideological interests. I think libertarians believe in oversight because on, on balance it will diminish public demand for government. Uh, when they see where the money goes and what happens with it, uh, they'll realize perhaps that private, private solutions are better than government solutions. Liberals and progressives believe that transparency will validate and strengthen federal programs, uh, clean up the political process. Uh, conservatives, they just have to figure out what they think about a lot of different things. <laughs> We're here to help you, by the way. Um, whatever the case, whatever the case, uh, transparency is a win-win bet. If government programs are validated and work better, that's better than just having government programs in place and failing. So I think, uh, I think there is pan-ideological support for transparency, and that's why we have a diverse ideological panel today, uh, diverse ideological friends in the audience, and uh, diverse ideological friends watching online. Thank you very much, and welcome to all of you. So let's talk about getting our hands on the data. We have three uh, great panelists, each of whom has a paper or report that, that has recently come out from them. Uh, first, we'll start with Jerry Brito. Jerry is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. He serves as an adjunct professor of law at uh, GMU School of Law. His research interests include regulation, telecommunications policy, and government transparency. And he maintains an alternative interface to the federal government's regulatory docketing system at openregulations.org. Jerry's JD is from George Mason University School of Law. And he was at Cato at some point in the past, too, in some capacity or other. He can, about six years ago. About six Four years ago years. when he was two, he was at, uh, <laughs> he was at Cato. Uh, Ed Felton will speak second. He's professor of computer science and public affairs at Princeton University, and he's the founding director of Princeton's Center for Information Technology Policy. His research interests include technology policy, computer security, and privacy, author of about 80 papers and two books. He's widely quoted on web security, copyright and copy protection, electronic voting. Uh, highly recommended to you his blog, freedomtotinker.com, which you can probably find without me telling you, but it's freedom-to-tinker.com. Finally, we'll hear from Gary Bass. Gary is the, author, the founder and executive director of OMB Watch. He's the co-author of the 2007 book, Seen But Not Heard, Strengthening Nonprofit Advocacy. I suspect he didn't mean to help out the Cato Institute with that book, but we are a nonprofit as well, and we might take advantage of some of your insights. Um, he, was a, he was a champion of the Coburn-Obama legislation, and I assume he'll talk about that some. Uh, it came out about the same time that, that OMB Watch launched their very successful fedspending.org. In addition to his work at OMB Watch, Dr. Bass is an affiliated associate professor at Georgetown University's Public Policy Institute and also teaches in the Nonprofit Management Executive Certificate Program at Georgetown Center for Public and Nonprofit Leadership. Without further ado, let's hear from each of our panelists uh, for about 10 minutes. We'll do some discussion ourselves, then uh, take questions from the audience. First up, Jerry Brito. All right. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, everybody, for coming. I think we need to screen, so I'm going to do a little show and tell. All right. Well, um, I was first going to tell you uh, why transparency is important, but Jim's already done that, so I'm going to dispense with that and just talk to you about what makes transparency online different, right? Uh, transparency online uh, is a whole nother uh, animal.
Because when you put data on, see, we're already a transparent society. If you want a public document, you can go down to City Hall and get that document. You can go down to a basement on the hill and get that document. But when you put it online, you get accountability through crowdsourcing. And what that means basically is simply that you have now millions of eyeballs on these documents that can do a much better job of uh, holding government accountable, right? You can uh, – uh, it's a lot more easier, it's a lot more likely that the people will be able to find bad things, right, such as uh, fraud, waste, abuse, Senate seats for sale, right? You'll be able to find this a lot easier. And it's not just about finding the bad things, but if you put the stuff online and you have millions of eyeballs on the data – uh, it gives an incentive to those in government who now know that what they're doing is being watched by everybody to do the right thing. And not just the right thing as far as corruption is concerned, but to do the cost-effective thing, to think twice about the regulation uh, that they're putting through. So putting data online is just the first step, right? Putting it on online so now it's accessible to anybody via the web is step one. That's a fantastic step. The second step that's probably as important is making it searchable. Right? If you can't search for the data, you can't find it, it might as well not be online at all. And that's a terrific step that needs to be taken as well. The problem is, is that when government uh, creates websites, they often stop there. They stop it online and searchable. And that's terrific, but there's a third step, and that's making the data structured and available as a feed so that folks can take it and do interesting things with it. They can mash it up. So what's mashup? That's sort of a term of art. I'll show you an example. This is... Craigslist, right? And as you know, um, the Craigslist site is the place for housing rental listings, uh, especially in urban areas. And so these are the uh, housing rental listings for Washington, D.C. And as you can see, there really is no order to these uh, uh, housing rental listings. Um, it's just the order that they were added to the database. So you have, um, you know, McLean, Van Ness, Capitol Hill, DuPont, one after the other. So if you're looking for just rentals in DuPont, let's say, uh, this isn't very useful to you. You have to go through all the sites and, and or sorry, go through all the listings and find the one that you're interested in. Um, this is the problem that a developer called Paul Rademacher faced in uh, 2006 when he moved to San Francisco, was looking for housing in a particular neighborhood. And he said, it's got to be a better way. And he knew that Craigslist offered uh, a free open feed of all of its data for all of its housing listings. And he also knew that Google Maps offered a free open API for all of uh, for its mapping software. So he took these two free open sources of data, mashed them together, and created something called housingmaps.com. And now, if you go to, to this site, you can choose a city, choose Washington, D.C., for example. Well, I chose New York here. It'll do for the example. Cato's computers are a little slow, Jim. So this always, is always a good idea to use a live online uh, demonstration. That's right. <laughs> so now, you know, you can zoom into a neighborhood that you're interested in, and you're only interested in these right here in Manhattan. There they are. You can click on it, and now you have the listing for just the neighborhood that you're interested in. You can ignore all the ones that are around, right? This site, this application is more valuable than either Craigslist or Google Maps standing on its own. So this is what a mashup is. So what's an application of a, ma of a mashup uh, in government when we're talking about government data? Well, there's this fantastic site that I recommend to you called maplight.org. And the map in maplight stands for money and politics. And what they do is that they take uh, a feed of congressional votes, 
right, congressional vote, voting data, how members of Congress vote, and they take campaign finance data from the SEC. And they mash those two things together, and you get some interesting results. This is one of the ways you can view the data on maplight.org. This is a view of a particular bill. This is the Oman uh, Free Trade Agreement, which was uh, passed in the last Congress. And if you, we scroll down here, like I said, this is just one of the views. I recommend you go there and see what else they offer. But this is basically a timeline of contributions from uh, January 2001 all the way to September of 2008. And the green bars represent money contributed to members of Congress by folks who are interested, who, who are in favor of the bill passing. Red is money con contributed by folks who are against the bill passing. And so the first thing you notice is that, not surprisingly, the bill passed, and the folks who are in favor of the bill contributed a lot more money. Very interesting. Um, not suggesting any causation here, but good to, good to know. Uh, down here you also see uh, these flags, which represent votes in the House and in the Senate. They happen in July and September. And what you see is that the amount of money contributed sort of spikes around this area. Again, not suggesting any causation, but very interesting. And, and there's no way that you can know to look for this data. You can't search for this data, right? You have to look for patterns. And, these, you, can, and you can do this when you have mashups that allow you to, to uh, search for this data. Now, there's been a lot of talk about an Obama CTO, an, Ob an Obama administration uh, chief transparency officer for the federal government. And as we think about that, I'd like to suggest a model for how, uh, what a federal CTO might want to look like. Some, something I learned about recently is the District of Columbia's own uh, CTO, which if you go to the CTO's office uh, website, the District of Columbia, it's really amazing. It's, it's, they have something called the data catalog, which is a virtual cornucopia of feeds that are made available from government systems from the District of Columbia that are piped through to this website and are available to all of us to look at, to subscribe to, and to take and run with and mash and, and create interesting applications. And so you have things from juvenile arrests to construction projects to uh, permitting licenses. They even have uh, roadkill pickups on here that you can take. You can map them on, on a Google map. You can, you can take, you know, uh, see if, if crime is somehow related to roadkill. You know, you, you can do amazing things. But the, the CTO, uh, CTO's office didn't just put the data up, which was terrific. They also encouraged developers to use this data. They created something called Apps for Democracy, which was a contest where they said, you know, to draw attention to the fact that they had this data catalog. They said, hey, developers, we've got all this data. We want you to take it, run with it, make amazing applications, and submit them to our contest. And the winner, which is chosen by votes on the website, um, gets a, a small cash prize and a recognition. And the result were some amazing applications that you can see if you go to uh, appsfordemocracy.com. Um, dot org. Dot org. Thank you, Jim. Uh, <laughs> one, one that I find really interesting, something called We the People Wiki. And what it does is uh, you have all of these. Um, they chose a bunch of different feeds, like crime uh, feeds, for example. And what they did is that for each item in the feed, they will create a wiki page. Right? So if there's a crime reported, that crime report gets a wiki page, and citizens can follow up with what's been ha happening as, you know, related to that. If there's a uh, pothole that needs to be filled that's been reported, and that is an item that comes through the feed, a wiki page is created. And the citizens can hold government accountable and see you know, what's been going on about that. So I should, you know, recommend that you check that out. Uh, so where am I? So this is what we want to see, more, more of this. Uh, I want to show you now uh, how not to do it. 
uh, I want to show you some, some government websites that leave a little bit to be desired. And the folks who uh, are interested in transparency and nonprofit, you know, nonprofits are interested in transparency, other organizations, they tend to focus on Congress. And that's completely understandable because that's where a lot of the action happens. That's where a lot of the money is being spent. Um, I'm particularly interested in regulatory data. Um, some estimates put the cost of regulation to the economy at about a trillion dollars uh, a year. And that's very important, right? That's a part of government. It's a fourth branch of government, some would say, uh, that really we're not keeping our eye on. And the online components of those agencies, those regulatory agencies, really is not that great. So I wanted to show you uh, what this looks like. So I like to pick on the FCC. Uh, I like to pick on it because of my interest in telecommunications, but also because the FCC has a, uh, a constituency and one would hope a management that is internet savvy, right? Should be the C and FCC stands for communications. Um, this is the website that you get to if you're looking for a document in the regulatory, uh, uh, sorry, for a document in the regulatory docket. Um, one thing to note right off the bat is when was the last time this was updated, right? The, all the data on here is up to date, but I'm talking about the system. When was the last time it was updated? And if you come down here and you see at the very bottom it says last updated, December 11th, 2003. So tomorrow it'll be five years. And in Internet years, it's like 100 years. This is, this is completely unacceptable. So let, let's look at what we have on here. Um, let's suppose that you're a mom out in California, and uh, uh, you have a couple kids that like to play video games, and you read in the paper that the FCC is considering reg to regulate um, the content of video games. And so you're interested. You want to see what this proposed rule looks like. Maybe you want to comment on the rule. So you, you know, eventually you can find yourself here, and you say, okay, I want to find this regulation. Where do you type in video games? There is nowhere, right? There is no full-text search on this site. You have got to know the docket number in order to pull up the document, right? And that may work for the folks at the FCC. It might work for me, somebody who follows this. It might work for, you know, certainly lobbyists will make it their business to know what the docket numbers are. But a mom out in California isn't going to be able to find any information using this website. So why, don't, why doesn't she just use Google, right? She can use Google to search the FCC site. Well, turns out that the FCC has uh, turned off the ability for Google... MSN, Yahoo, or any other commercial search engine to index its docket. It's just not possible. So even if you use Google, you wouldn't find anything in the docketing system. Um, even if you were able to search for the, the FCC website in full text, you might not get anything back, right? The FCC uses PDFs for all of its documents, which is a fine, open data format. But it, like all of you, I'm sure, know, there are two kinds of PDFs. There are text PDFs that you can search, and then image PDFs that are just pictures, images, I've seen the FCC take official documents that they have created, print them out, scan them in as, as image PDFs, and then put them online where they are completely unsearchable. And let's not even talk about feeds. There are no RSS feeds, XML feeds of any kind that you could take from the FCC and use. And unfortunately, this sorry state is what a lot of our regulatory agencies' uh, docking systems look like. Now, you have something called regulations.gov, and regulations.gov is the Bush administration's effort to centralize all of the different agencies' docketing systems into one central docketing system that all agencies can use and everybody can access through one website, regulations.gov. And I'm sad to say it really leaves a lot to be desired. Um, and I can't go into uh, everything that's wrong with this site, uh, but I would commend to you an excellent report 
that was put out recently by the Administrative Law Section of the American Bar Association. Um, you can find it if you go to tinyurl.com slash ABA report. You can find it there. And uh, it really goes into great detail about how the site can be improved. And I know that the folks who are working on the site are, doing, are trying really hard, and I commend them for it, but there's a long way to go. The, the biggest concern that that uh, ABA report found is that there was no standardization across uh, agencies, right? So different agencies would put up the same document on this website but call them different things. So when you as a user come here and try to search, you, don't, you can't find anything. So let me give you uh, just a small example of this. Um, this is their advanced search. So if we come here and you say, okay, document type, I want to look for notices, right? Notices from agencies. Um, Oh, there you go. A timeout has occurred. Not to... See, they don't want me to show you. Here. Here we go. We're... Okay, so if you come here and you choose... Uh, no... Hold on one second. I'll bring it right back up. I should have listened to Jim. Once again, the live demonstration model. <laughs> so document type. I want to choose a notice. I want to see what kind of notices are up on, on regulations.gov. And now it tells me, okay, what kind of document subtype, right? What kind of notice are you interested in? So I click on here, and this is what I get. Dozens and dozens and dozens. So you would think normally that there would be 10 types of notices that all agencies put out. No, you have dozens and dozens and dozens. And why is that? Well, it's because every agency has complete freedom to put up any kind of notice that it, that it, that it has. And if the same document is called a different thing by 10 different agencies, there will be 10 different kinds of notices. And you'll never find them across the agencies. You'll also notice that it's not alphabetized. So even if you knew what it was called... You can find it in here. Here's something that I think is uh, interesting. Um, let me see if I can find it in this soup. I'm not sure if I'll be able to. But there's something called a meeting notice. Here it is. Here's meeting notice. And it's capital M, meeting, capital N, notice. So that's one kind of meeting notice. Then there's something called meeting notice, capital M meeting, lowercase n meeting. And if you, were, if you clicked on meeting notice, you know, and this is a series, I know it's a little funny, but if, but if you clicked on meeting notice all capital and you searched for something, nothing came up, you said, okay, doesn't exist. Uh, you wouldn't stop to search here. If you were trying to do a mashup, not that the site offers fees, which is another problem, but if you're trying to do a mashup, you wouldn't be able to take all of the meeting notices, right, because you, you have different sources for it. I like this one here too, test. Anyhow, en enough bashing with that. You know, we want to make interesting mashups and remixes of data so that citizens, journalists, academics, uh, you know, anybody can hold government accountable and make it better, more effective. But first, we need the data. And putting it online is not enough, right? We need, to, we need it in a usable format. So, you know, to the Obama administration and the next CTO, you know, I like to say, take a page from the D.C. CTO and, you know, and just give us the data. Thank you.
I should have mentioned at the outset uh, each of our each of our guests' papers. Uh, Jerry's paper is called "Hack, Mash, and Peer: Crowdsourcing Government Transparency." It's a Mercatus Center uh, working paper, easily findable online. <coughs> Likewise, Ed Felton's paper is "Government Data and the Invisible Hand" with David Robinson, Harlan Yu, and William Zeller. Let's bring up Ed Felton. Thanks. Um, I'll, I'll just talk from here if that's all right. Uh, so one of the lessons of Jerry's presentation, I think, is that it's not just enough for government to give us the data. The FCC, after all, and regulations.gov did give us the data. Uh, it matters a lot how government gives us the data. Uh, and in particular, it's important for government to give us the data in a way, in the way that best facilitates the kind of mashup and visualization and transformative use of the data that, um, that we saw in Jerry's good examples. Um, and, uh, and the work that we've done at, at Princeton on this topic has really focused on this question of how government should give the data uh, to us and, and what principles should be followed. Um, and one of the strong conclusions that we've reached in our work is that what we don't want from government is uh, an information portal that provides all-purpose access to citizens um, uh, for the, uh, to the data. And the reason for that is that when government tries to make a portal site that provides, um, that provides the end user access to, uh, to data, you get something like the FCC site and you, or something like regulations.gov. These are sites that are trying to do too much, uh, trying to do it with uh, too few resources, and trying to do it in a very complicated administrative setting where you have a lot of different agencies with different cultures and different ways of naming things all working together. So rather than government trying to provide these all-purpose portals, uh, we argue instead that government should, uh, to the extent possible, get out of the portal business and instead focus just on providing data feeds, providing the raw data to, uh, to anyone who wants to use it and then try to rely on uh, private parties outside government, whether nonprofits, universities, the press, um, or uh, companies like Google or Microsoft, to, uh, to take that data and, and massage it into more useful form and, and make it available. So the model is that when you want government information, you don't go to a government website, you go to a private website. You go to Maplite, you go to, um, uh, you go to fedspending.org or, or some site like that. Uh, now, there are a lot of advantages of taking this function of presenting data to the public and moving it outside of government. Um, first of all, uh, moving a function outside of government is normally going to make that function more efficient, right? You don't need to convince a Cato Institute audience of that. Um, but, but probably even more important than that uh, is, is that um, by by taking this function and moving it outside of government, we allow different people to do it in different ways. Uh, there's no need to choose in advance what's the one best way to take information about, say, the passage of bills through the Congress um, and, and present it to the public. Different sites can do it in different ways. And indeed, um, uh, when it comes to information about what's happening in Congress, there are different sites. There's Washington Watch, uh, Jim's site, which uh, focuses on... Uh, um, on, uh, which highlights, for example, the cost of each bill and provides um, some uh, discussion uh, facilities for people to talk about the, uh, uh, to talk about the bill, a wiki and, and, and a forum, and so on. Uh, there's the MapLite site, which takes 
information about what's happening in Congress and mashes it up with, um, with contribution data, uh, which we, uh, like Jerry showed us. And that's a different way of visualizing what's happening in Congress. Nobody has to decide what's the one right way to do it. Um, uh, Jim can do it his way, and Maplight can do it their way, it, as long as government provides the data in a way that's going to facilitate their uh, ability to do that. Uh, so by moving the function of, of, of user interaction outside of government, you allow different approaches to be tried and you allow citizens to vote with their feet for the one that's going to work the best. Uh, and this is especially important because we're looking for sites that do more than just show people the data, although that is important. There are a lot of other functions which, um, uh, a lot of other ways in which people can add value to the data. Uh, Jerry's example of someone looking for uh, FCC proceedings about video games is a good example. Uh, you could have a simple search engine if the, if the data were searchable, which would let someone type in video games and search for that phrase in a proceeding. But what you'd really like is someone to be able to, top in, to type in video games and get proceedings that are about video games, even if the words video games don't appear uh, ju in just that form uh, in the raw document. Um, there are ways of doing this. There are ways of analyzing the data and finding um, that some documents have a lot of video game-oriented words in them, uh, even if they don't have the phrase exactly. So things like topic analysis, topical search, and so on uh, become possible when you uh, let uh, all the knowledge that's out there about how to operate on big data sets uh, go to work. Uh, people start to analyze and model the information in interesting ways. It becomes subject of... Um, uh, of research, people trying to find patterns in the data. Uh, consider, for example, the housing data. You could mine that data for all kinds of interesting information about the impact of, um, of the economic downturn. You could look for the effect of zoning laws in this place versus that place. How does that affect um, property values, the availability of property, and so on? Once the data is there, all those things become possible. Uh, and finally, another advantage of moving these functions outside of government is uh, is that one of the important functions you'd like is to let people discuss uh, what's in the data. Uh, you want to set up a discussion forums, wikis, whatever, and, and let people talk about all of that. Um, but in order to be useful, a discussion forum in practice has to be, mo has to be moderated. There needs to be somebody who can uh, erase the spam, erase the abuse, um, and, and even kick off people who who repeatedly abuse the, uh, the facility. That's a difficult thing for government to do. It's just not easy for government, um, uh, for obvious First Amendment reasons, it's problematic for government to say, you can't comment on the FCC site anymore. Sorry, we didn't like what you said before. Um, on a private site, not a problem. If Jim wants to kick somebody off Washington Watch, um, that's fine. If he kicks too many, and I'll bet you do, <laughs> uh, if you kick too many people off for bad reasons, people will go elsewhere. So we want to move as much of this as possible outside of government. We want to leave in government the one thing that only government can do, which is to provide the raw data. Now, there are a bunch of challenges even in doing that simple task. Uh, the issues of how to format the data, how to present it, and so on are trickier than you might think, and government will end up as a kind of convener of a standards discussion about how this information will be presented. One successful example of this is the, uh, uh, is the SEC's uh, standardization of uh, formats and, uh, and definitions for how financial data gets reported. Um, issues of data quality are important. Government databases, like all databases, have errors, and you'd like to be able to call those errors out over time. That means you need a mechanism for people to, to complain, and you want the agencies to have to address those. 
Uh, there are questions of comparability, compatibility of data across different agencies and data sets. Um, if this agency uh, is putting its expenditures online and that agency is putting its expenditures online, you'd like to be able to check easily, is the company that's being paid over here the same company that's being paid over there? Simple standardization can make that uh, relatively easy and therefore can, uh, can uh, be a catalyst for letting people use this, inf this government data. Uh, finally, I want to talk about, um, about what I think is the next uh, interesting problem related to government transparency, and that is um, moving beyond cases where government is publishing data that it has to situations where government is receiving input from citizens. Uh, processes like the notice and comment um, uh, procedure, which many agencies used with proposed regulations. Um, it's now possible to file comments on um, two agencies online, and that's a good thing. A lot more people are filing, uh, are filing comments, but uh, there's a problem, which is that the sheer volume of, com of comments is now really trying the ability of agencies to deal with it. Um, you see cases of hundreds of thousands of comments being submitted and an agency having a couple weeks with perhaps a dozen people to, uh, to review them. That's not practical. Uh, and the result of that is that the requirement that agencies review the comments and respond substantively to all of them um, uh, really, has to fall by, really has to fall by the wayside. Uh, so we want to understand how government can solicit input, uh, and in particular in the notice and comment process. There's, uh, Jerry referred to the, uh, the ABA study of the current state um, of, uh, of notice and comment, uh, and, and I would also commend uh, that report to you. But I think there are, there are some really difficult problems of how to let people be heard while not overwhelming government. I think it's possible to, uh, uh, to work on this, but, um, um, but I think that's the next challenge. Thank you. Which way you want? Whatever you like. Um, I can sit here. Gary Bass from OMB Watch and OMB Watch recently put out this uh, important report moving toward a 21st century right-to-know agenda, which deals not only with transparency with, but with secrecy. Um, very important stuff and very agreeable to me. Gary Bass. If it's agreeable to you, then I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also was on the ABA panel that both of the other speakers um, mentioned, so I'm really pleased to see, and this wasn't caucused beforehand, but I was really pleased to see that both of them mentioned the notion that we can improve if we put our heads to it, heads together, we can improve the e-rulemaking system to make it more responsive. But i got to tell you, listening to the last two, it was sort of like, you know, it's like misery love company or something. You know, it was all these, I was thinking of a story, um, my one attempt at humor when we talk about data, but um, a fellow who went to buy a horse and heard that a man of the clergy was selling a horse and visited the clergyman, and the, horse, uh, the clergyman says, yeah, I have a horse for sale, but my horse is a little unusual. To make my horse go, you say, holy cow. To make the horse stop, you say, amen. Guy says, can I try it out? Hops on the horse, says, holy cow. Horse takes off with a great gallop. You know, he's riding along, and he says, amen. On a dime, the horse stops. He thinks this is great. Turns the horse around, says, holy cow, races back to the clergyman's house, amen. He hops off and says, I'll buy the horse. And the clergyman says, well, you know, I just want to make sure you remember how to make this horse go and how to make it stop. No problem. Pays off clergyman. Hops on the horse. Holy cow, racing along, you know. And all of a sudden, out in the distance is a cliff. 
And he starts pulling back on the reins, going, whoa. Horse doesn't slow down. Obviously, he knows he's going to go over the cliff, so he decides to say a prayer. And sure enough, just as he gets to the edge of the cliff, he finishes the prayer with amen. Out of dime, the horse stops. Guy looks over the cliff, and he goes, holy cow. (laughs) I don't think there's any of us. I've been doing it for 25 years, but, uh, you know, a lot of you have been doing it longer. I think all of us have had sort of the holy cow looking over the edge. We not only can't get the data, but it's always in the wrong format or the FCC model or you name it. So I think what I want to talk about is a little bit on the amen side. You know, how do we make it stop now? Now, I, I did have the good fortune of, in 2006, helping to draft that legislation that has been talked about that created the searchable website on government spending that uh, Senators, uh, then-Senator Barack Obama and Senator Tom Coburn worked on. It was a great opportunity. I also, not believing that legislation could actually get enacted, we put our heads together and created our own website that said how to do it, and that was fedspending.org. Coincidentally, because of a very effective blogging lobbying effort over that summer in 2006, the law did get passed, did get enacted, and coincidentally, it was right around the same time that we launched our website. So, being good folks, we wrote a letter to the government and said, hey, we just went through this. If you want some advice, we'll be happy to give you some advice. And sure enough, one of the top OMB officials, uh, Robert Shea, called right after uh, the letter came and said, um, Director Nussel said um, at OMB, let's, um, let's get together. We did, and it led to a very productive relationship where we ended up, believe it or not, a small nonprofit like OMB Watch that created Fed Spending, licensed our site to the government, and that became usaspending.gov. That was the whole story. The shocking thing about it, at least to me, all these people were using the website from all over, not only the country, the world. Our site, you mentioned a number. I just took a quick look today, and it was, on average, we're getting 700,000 visits a month conducting roughly an average of about a million searches a month. People want to know. And as Jim said, it might be for a whole variety of reasons. You know, some are libertarians, some are conservatives, some are progressive. Some don't have an ideological view. They just want to know what's going on. I think it's the most exciting thing, and it's demonstrated it's neither left nor right. That was the lesson I came away with from that whole experience with the Coburn-Obama law, is what we're talking about now, of building the possibility of expanding the public's right to know, it's an American issue. It is no longer and should never have been perceived as either a right or a left issue. And with that that experience, we went into, and right around 2007, and said, don't you think we better start getting ready for the next administration? And so we approached it with conservatives, libertarians, and progressives jointly sitting down and trying to figure out what should we be recommending to the next administration. And we did it not only in the context of different ideological values, but different kinds of backgrounds, people who were journalists, 
people who are advocacy groups, think tanks, a whole variety. We did interviews with probably well over 100 folks who were so-called experts. We did listening sessions around the country who are the people who use the data. We then did expert panels on various subjects. And then we had a massive retreat with people from around the country to come up with very specific recommendations, which yielded the report, Jim, that you just held up, which had about, uh, oh, I think there were about 70 discrete recommendations in that, that document. It was an exciting process, and I came away from the experience saying there are really two kinds of problems we have to wrestle with. One is the policy problem, which is the government has policies that tend to tilt towards more secrecy or less openness, and there are things all the way from how FOIA, how the Freedom of Information Act is implemented to the way presidential records are dealt with. It goes all the way to the post-9-11 experience of scrubbing websites and pulling down things, all the way to the kind of culture in government that sort of there's no incentive to disseminate or put information out. So we have a policy problem first off. Secondly, we have the kind of problem that we've been talking about here right now, which is we're mired in the 20th century, some might say 19th century method of how we disseminate information. We've got to pull the government into the 21st century. We have to, if there is such a word, we have to web 2.0-ize government. <laughs> um, we have a ways to go. Those are two big kinds of problems, policy and technology. And so in this set of recommendations, we approached it from both angles at the same time, bringing them together to recognize you can't do one without the other. And let me say what the vision is. It isn't simply, as we talked about, to get the data. What we really want to do, what that big document said, and what the 350-plus signers and endorsers of it have said, is we want to transform government. We want to have government, again, reconnect with we the people. That's the objective. To do that, we have to fundamentally shift the way government operates. Things like Freedom of Information Act should become the vehicle of last resort, not first resort. We need to find the mechanism to say to the federal agencies, you have an affirmative obligation, you have a mandate, you have a requirement to make information public except where law does not permit that. The burden on proof is on you, the agency, on withholding, not on the public to request. That's a complete shift in the way the government operates. That's the kind of message that's embedded in those detailed recommendations, is to make that happen. Now, it all sounds great, uh, and it's like amen, but there are going to be challenges, and since this is a data conversation, let me highlight maybe four or five high, key challenges. The first one that we're going to face is how do we change the climate in government? There are no rewards, there are no bonuses, there are no pay increases that occur if you as a federal civil servant take the energy to put information out. And in fact, there are many times disincentives because you get burned. If you do something wrong, you're the one that's held accountable. So we have to find a way to address this problem about the climate. And I will say one of the notions when you talked about interactivity 
and bringing the public in, it's going to mean a different way of government staffing itself to respond to those interactive dialogues. We don't have that structure today. Second kind of problem that was highlighted in both of the speakers already, data quality. Garbage in, garbage out. That's not what we want. I can tell you from doing the Fed spending, usaspending.gov, the data quality is not very high. I'm not criticizing the Coburn-Obama law because I think it put us on the right path. And my experience in doing this from years ago is the more we use government data, the higher the quality will become because we'll complain. But we also should be challenging the government to improve the quality of the information that is first and foremost put out. Thirdly, Jerry did a great job of talking about some of the data architecture, I'll call it architecture problems. A couple that you didn't mention that I would throw in. On your example of, of, of regulations.gov, even if you put in a search, what I don't want is 10 billion pages coming back. <laughs> and that's what you get right now. You can't discern. And so as a consumer, as a public, I just get turned off and get afraid. So I no longer pursue it. Okay, so that's one kind of problem that we have to address. The other is, going back to my fedspending.org, my experience with government data, even if you wanted to put in something like, oh, post-Katrina, who got money? You can't just put in the word Katrina. And it's not because of the technique that was talked about. It's because the underlying data doesn't have the word Katrina anywhere in it. There's nothing in what is given to us that gives that kind of description anywhere. So if it's not structured right, we're not going to get it back right is a key problem. The one, by the way, last bugaboo I would make on that format issue, unless we can get things like parent company identification numbers so that we can better tell who's connected to who, we're never going to get to this kind of proper linkage of data. And I can tell you from doing the government data on the spending stuff, it is horrendous. So let me go to my, my last two ones on challenges very quickly. I completely agree about the using Web 2.0 ideas and um, application programming interfaces and mashups. I think that's just absolutely critical. What I would say, though, is government has a fundamental responsibility to provide the website itself for those who can't get it from other places. <clears throat> no one government website will serve all of our needs. We know that. That's the advantage of the mashup. That's the great thing about the Craigslist example of going beyond that and taking it data and doing something special. When we licensed the Fed spending software to the government, we mandated in the license that they had to use the API that we had. No one has used it from the government's knowledge. So we've got to do things more in that area of Web 2.0. Finally, we need the right data. You know, they put up on this uh, usaspending.gov all the grants and contracts and loans and insurance, but there's more kinds of government spending that we never see. What about tax expenditures? What about one thing that Cato cares about, spectrum giveaways? What about all the cheap deals or the freebies on land uses? 
I mean, there are hundreds of ways in which government is giving subsidy we don't even track, and we have no mechanism for seeing this. And so we give a false impression with the data that is put out there. Okay, so those are challenges. Let me just finish on the positive, which is prospects for the future. I'm really optimistic. I think we are at the amen stage. I mean, just take a look at change.gov that Jim mentioned. And there's a, the new page that was put on last Friday, the your seat at the table. How many of you have heard about that? Okay, a few of you. What they added last Friday was a new page that had, it's called Your Seat at the Table. Those recommendations we sent are now online for the public to see, and people are commenting on them. And in fact, the ones we submitted on transparency have among the highest, along with the environmental recommendations from people all around the country. What a remarkable difference. Think back. Your seat at the table versus either the Clinton Health Care Task Force or the Cheney Energy Task Force. That Cheney Energy Task Force, we didn't even know there was a table. <laughs> My goodness, we're talking about government in a completely new way. And I am most hopeful. Let me just finally say, we in this room, we're of different values, but we are in common position that we want a real right to know. It seems to me this is our moment in time. This is when we should unify. This is when we should be talking about the most open, honest, accountable government and getting there. Thanks. Well, I've been scratching notes to myself and, and have a dozen questions if I permitted myself the time. But, but I'll, I'll just ask one or two, and if you have uh, questions for each other or want to discuss some things that, that came up in later talks, either of you, please, I'd love, to, love for you to step in. Let me ask a sort of typical D.C.-type question. Uh, there is a lot of talk about a chief technology officer. Um, I migrate more toward being enthusiastic about there being a chief transparency officer and have joked that the chief technology officer would run the federal government's technology the way a cork runs the ocean. Um, what are your thoughts, each of you if, you, if you care to, on a chief technology officer as in terms of advisability, the success of the job, the politics, the practicality, et cetera? Well, I mean, I think we've, we've seen sort of attempts at a chief technology officer. Uh, for example, at OMB, you have uh, an e-gov person. Um, and like you said, it's, it's very difficult because you're, you're, you're herding cats. But the fact that uh, uh, President Obama has made this such a, uh, a signal point um, I think speaks volumes, right? It at least says we're going to try to create a common vision. And I think it's a good thing, right? I think it, you're right, it's going to be difficult, but it at least sets us in, in the right direction, and uh, it, it shows the administration is serious about this. I, and I think that's good that there's somebody to bust heads about that. As a libertarian, Jerry, how many FTEs do you think the government should grow by in order to fulfill this uh, role? If the government uh, has any FTE... Um, uh, if the government has any responsibility, it is to show what it is doing inside the walls. So that is a perfectly legitimate function for government. And, you know, we could probably quibble about, uh, you know, how much money we should spend on this. But ultimately, if it's done right, and this technology is cheap, right? Ed can tell us about how this is all open source and, and available. Um, I, you know, it shouldn't cost that much, and it'll be money well spent. Ed, Gary? Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, one hears different um, um, 
different explanations of what a chief technology officer's job would be. Uh, chief transparency officer is one of them. I think it's the easiest one to, uh, to argue for um, among, the, uh, uh, among the things that are, that are discussed. Certainly, uh, uh, it appears that the new administration is going to make transparency, uh, is going to make transparency priority, and, um, and that's, I think, more important ultimately than the question of how the org chart is, uh, is designed. It's important to have somebody who's driving that transition and somebody who uh, I think is overseeing the, uh, the technical things that need to happen. But uh, to me, the important story here is, is about the administration uh, apparently wanting to really push on these, on these issues. Yeah, I, actually, I agree with both of my colleagues. <laughs> um, I, I do think that um, it's a no-brainer that we have someone in government who is responsible for whether it's technology or transparency. I think there, for me, it raises three questions, and that is, where does it sit? Does it sit in the White House? Does it sit at OMB? Where, what clout does it carry? Secondly, what does it do? <laughs> What's its responsibilities? Um, I'd want to know that before I sort of buy off. And then the thirdly is, how does it work? We already got a lot of chiefs. I mean, we've got a chief information officer. We've got a chief, you know, financial officer. We've got what, – what is it we're really seeking? This report actually <laughs> – the, the recommendations, it was striking that the players that were involved actually called for both a technology officer and a transparency officer. And I was still baffled as one of the, hand, the writers <laughs> for this. I didn't quite know how they gelled together. Um, but I, I agree with you, Ed. I think it's, it's not just solely an org chart question. This is, is really also about building the capacities of the agencies to do the work. And some of this, frankly, and I know it's not a good thing to say in mixed company, but it's going to cost money for the agencies. Uh, and we have to have the resources at the agency level to get it done. Frankly, I'm shocked. I'm appalled that OMB Watch had to develop a website it should be a no-brainer for the government to not have to go contract out for millions of dollars to build a website. This is not rocket science. But the capacity within the agencies has been really undermined. Gary, we're going we're gonna to turn off your microphone if you ask for resources again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gary, do you have something more? I just want to say really quickly that there is a question of what is the CTO position that's been talked about going to do? What, what, is, what is the role? And uh, there's even this site called ObamaCTO.com or org where um, – is it org? Yeah, thanks. I always got those. Um, where uh, citizens are encouraged to go and, and write in their wish list of what this Obama CTO should do. And I think there's a misunderstanding about what this is. A lot of folks say, well, it should be, you know, it, their brief should be net neutrality and increased broadband, et cetera. And uh, you need to go back and read – all of the public pronouncements by President-elect Obama on what this position is. And it is not a CTO of the United States. It is a CTO of the federal government. It is about federal government computer systems. Uh, so That's right. if, if you keep that in mind, um, I can at least buy off a little bit than well, I would if it was a... Uh, I, I will say the, the one thing that impressed me about the model, how many of you knew there was a privacy czar in the Clinton um, administration? A few of you. Um, Peter Swire served that role, and, and his clout came really from the stamp that everyone knew the president cared about privacy. And so I think, Ed, the strength is we know that Obama cares about transparency, so that person, if it's given that clout, 
may carry a fair amount of weight within the agencies if given resources to get it done. Do you have more you want to say? Or? No. We have a lot of um, technological sophisticates here with us, but some non-sophisticates. And so, Ed, I wanted to ask you to go into a little more detail on what we're talking about when we talk about standards. Jerry said feed earlier, and there might be a couple of people who don't even know what a feed is. So talk about data structure. Talk about what kinds of things we might ask of government agencies um, in terms of how they present data. What does all that stuff mean? Sure. Um, so if you look at a web page, for example, that presents some government data um, on it, uh, and you uh, – it, well, if you're a little bit techy, you could do a view source on that web page. That sort of shows the, uh, the coding that gets sent – down to your computer that describes how the page is supposed to look. And when that page is constructed, it's basically uh, uh, two things mixed together. Some of it is the data, the actual information about how much the government spent on this contract or how Senator X voted on Bill Y. Uh, And some of it is just information about formatting. What color is the background supposed to be and how big should the font be and where does this text go on the page and so on. Uh, And uh, so when we talk about a feed or we talk about presenting raw data, what we mean is taking all that formatting stuff away and just providing the, raw, the information that we care about in a very simple and straightforward way. Here's the name of the company that government is spending money to. Here's is, is, uh, giving money to. Here is the amount. Here is the date that we cut the check. Here is the agency that it came from, and so on, in a very simple and straightforward way. And the whole idea is to encode that information, provide it in a way that makes it as easy as possible for somebody else to take that data apart. Uh, And there's been a lot of effort in the uh, computing and Internet industries to work out standardized ways of doing that, formats like you hear buzzwords like XML and RSS feeds and so on. Um, And and what all that's about really is just uh, a set of technical standards for providing simple data in a straightforward way. That's really what we're talking about. And the importance of using those standards is that that then lets, if government provides the data in those simple standardized ways, that lets you take that data and feed it directly into the tools that the industry already uses for gathering and analyzing and presenting data. So you want this government data to be kind of in the Web 2.0 ecosystem, meaning that you can easily do the same kinds of stuff with it that you can do with all kinds of commercial data. Similar question. Jerry, you used the word crowdsourcing. Um, For people who don't know what that means, what the heck are you talking about? Uh, So crowdsourcing means that something that before um, uh, could be done by one person, so let's say writing an encyclopedia, is something that would take one person or a team of, you know, 10, 20 people a long time to produce with a lot of effort, could be produced by millions of people writing half a sentence each, right? And that's what you get with Wikipedia. That is crowdsourcing. Um, I, I, I mean, the best way to explain these things is, is with an example. So Wikipedia would be an example of crowdsourcing. It's not one person, not one team creating an encyclopedia. It is millions of people contributing little bits. And so when I say crowdsourcing, transpa- uh, crowdsourcing accountability, uh, what I mean is you can have all of this data, but if you rely only on, say, the press, right? There are only so many reporters in the country. Uh, you allow anybody who's interested to go and look at this data, use the mashup tools to find interesting patterns. That's what you, how you crowdsource accountability. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn it over to you for questions, folks in the audience, pretty soon. The, one I want, the, the thing I want you to be thinking about, though, 
Um, Gary said that, that the passage of Coburn Obama was in part because of a blogging lobbying effort. And I think there's probably a word that comes out of that, some combination of the two words pushed together. Lobbying. 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 <laughs> think about that. But in addition to your more in addition to more substantive questions, while I ask uh, this of, of, uh, of our panelists, uh, Gary said that there is an, an important role for government in providing the basic websites. Um, Ed, your basic thesis was, was we don't need that. We can get away from that. Have I stumbled on a... a a kernel of, of controversy here, something we can argue about. Let's have fun. What's, uh, make, your, make your cases. Right. So um, my, my case here is that um, government is not the best, um, is not the best um, suited organization to make a website. Government has the data. Only government has the data about what government is doing, and so it should provide it. And I'm not arguing that government should not make a website to provide the data. I just think that that should be a secondary, uh, a secondary uh, goal for government after providing the raw data. And it's something that we should view as a second-best solution. If the private sector is not going to provide web access to a particular body of data, then government uh, may have to do it in order to make it available. But I think in practice, the private sites are going to be better and are likely to win. We've seen that with uh, congressional data, where there are several private sites that are better than uh, Congress's own uh, website. And we saw that with um, usaspending.gov. There's an example where a private party developed the site and then licensed it to the government. Uh, maybe it's because I lived it <laughs> that um, I know that that actually is not viable. That is, in order for an OMB watch to develop a fedspending.org, I have to go and raise that money from philanthropy or from, you know, individual donors. It is almost impossible to sustain that. What is doable is for the government to provide a core service and then value-add by the private sector. That is, the private sector should be able, whether nonprofit or for-profit, to take these feeds and develop niche sites or broad-based sites or whatever. If the, if the public goes to those, more power to it. I do remember back in the 80s, uh, there was an argument made by the private sector that um, the, that government should not be, quote, competing. Um, and there was one website that dealing with the toxics release inventory, which put out information about toxic releases that we put up the data on through our RTK net. You know, there isn't a market out there. And so what do you do if there isn't a market? Government needs to provide that information. Moreover, it isn't just providing the information. There's a crowd in the back here from the Sunlight Foundation. We've been wrestling on and off with how do we verify that Acme, the company Acme, is really Acme. There's Acme Plus. There's Acme Inc. There's, are they all the same? Unless the government develops the apparatus and the machinery and the accuracy of the information, we're all left with scrambling and trying to create the kind of right thing that has to happen. So I'd say, Ed, that I'm not in total disagreement with you since you say there needs to be some base. I just think the government has a first principle and a first responsibility to provide the information in a way that satisfies a base level for the public. There, there may be a market, and I encourage you to click on those Google ads when you visit WashingtonWatch.com, mm -hmm. folks. Let's, let's, uh, let's turn to questions. And um, the gentleman here in the, in the gray sweater, if you'll wait for the microphone to come around, I'm, I'm not a big uh, identification guy, so you don't need to say who you are if you don't want to, but you're welcome to in your affiliation. 
Okay, uh, Steve Fritzinger, I'm from Fairfax, and being one of those cynical libertarians, um, I keyed on Mr. Bass's points about institutionalizing the government's response as openness being their first rather than their last responsibility. I'm thinking about, um, you know, you apply public choice theory to this, and the first thing that will happen in the DOD is everybody will run to even faster to black budgets because then they won't have to bother with it. Your point about Clinton's privacy czar um, only having his authority or his power because of Clinton's um, personal stamp on it uh, that isn't sustainable. We immediately veered from that to a administration where secrecy was reflexive. Uh, so how do we institutionalize this? How do we make it permanent? Well, I, 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 I do think we can do it, and I think this is the moment in time. I don't think – I think we'd be a, a huge mistake to chalk it up as we need a CTO, we need an executive order, we need um, – you know – these one, this notions of that we can solve it by by one magic bullet or a series of five magic bullets isn't going to cut it, and that's what I was really trying to say is it is a cultural change we're talking about, and it's going to need all of these things like changing executive order whatever number. It's going to need changing the resource base and building capacity. It's going to need a lot of things, leadership within government, but I think we can put it in place so that it isn't responsive to just because it's President-elect Obama. That's what we want to get away from. We want to seize the moment that that's now to capitalize, to put in place those right things. And I think that a good chunk of it is if we can get two things, I think that it will help us get in the right path. One is the mindset about presumption of openness. And we have someone who actually was instrumental in implementing the Freedom of Information Act here in the room Dan Metcalf, who's now running American University's Collaboration on Government Secrecy, who has lived a lot of this. But I think one is changing and emphasizing the presumption of openness, and the other is exactly what these guys are talking about, and that's the Web 2.0 world. I think if we can get somehow within that, there's hundreds of things to do, but if we can get those two things done, we'll win. My thought on that is that the dominant sort of cultural understanding, I'm most familiar with the Hill, but I think it probably applies in agencies too. The dominant cultural understanding is that we'd better keep this to ourselves if we possibly can, and that's their source of authority and credibility. Um, They'll probably be drawn kicking and screaming to realize that openness is a more powerful source of authority and credibility than that closed model. It won't be easy, but but I think they can get there. Another question um, in the blue shirt on the aisle here. I'm uh, Jeff Alexander with New Economy Strategies, and actually one thing I'm interested in about in talking about the change in the culture of uh, disclosure and transparency, uh, you know, from an organizational point of view, disclosure is a very hard sell because we found out that when you talk to agencies about disclosing like their spending data, their initial reaction is, you're going to take this information and beat me over the head with it. So therefore, I have a self-interest in being, you know, obfuscating the data, you know, when in doubt, mumble kind of reaction. Um, one argument I'm trying to develop is the idea that if you have better transparency and quality of data, it will actually allow the agencies to function on a much higher level because if they know what they're spending their money on, especially what the impact they're having, A, it makes them much more effective as agencies, and B, you can also have um, collaborators like state and local governments come in and leverage that money with their own investment and actually have you know a, a, duplica- a, a multiplicative effect from the spending. So one idea I'm trying to think and see if your reaction is, is can we make a sale to the agencies and the, the culture of the bureaucracy that transparency is actually going to make, allow you to do your job much better? This is, 
I think there's an interesting connection here to some uh, cultural changes in the computer industry, actually, in recent years, where a bunch of companies have tried to uh, have tried to open their processes more to uh, uh, to customers. The um, uh, and the mantra that 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 we often heard was, uh, "Look, there are a lot of smart people in the world who don't work here, and um, if they if they if they're willing to give us even a little bit of their time or intelligence for free, uh, that's great." So if, when we open this data, when we in government open this data, there will be smart people who will look at it and they'll say surprising things to, back to us about what the data shows. Um, and sometimes it will be this isn't working at all, this is a bad idea, but sometimes it would be, look, when you do X instead of Y, uh, the program is more effective. Uh, and, and you get that for free. Uh, and your successes, you hope, will be well documented as well as your failures. So I think there is an argument to be made, but it requires a very different culture and a very different attitude toward uh, about how government interacts with the public. Yeah, Je Jeff, I would just add, and I, th I think you're right on about thinking how do we put this in the language of information resources management, which is an older set of terms, but is what the government management structure thinks about. And we have not yet made a compelling argument that transparency can help government work better in s for the inside. We always talk about it from our side, outside of government. So I think you're exactly right. And I will say, even one time when we did a demonstration of our fedspending.org, the Department of Education was shocked. They didn't know where some of the money was going. They just didn't know that. Um, and so they saw it as a really cool tool. Um, the other thing I would say is on the horizon, Jeff, I think we're going to also have to deal with intergovernmental relations. That is, the notion that now we're seeing more databases from the state on things like spending, it's going to be totally confusing to the public of this federal dollars not comporting with these state dollars, and how we make these mesh is going to be a huge issue. I would just add to what you were saying. <clears throat> um, I recommend you all look up uh, last week the Texas Comptroller put out a, uh, a report where she tallied up the savings as a result of the uh, the spending transparency website that they had put up, which I think cost them like a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars, but they they found like uh, up to like seven eight million dollars in savings. For example, all the agencies in different parts of the same of, of, of same agencies were uh, buying car uh, toner cartridges from different vendors, and by just spotting that, they didn't know they were doing it and just pulling it into one order of toner, they were able to s save tons of money. And you know, great example of how it's directly beneficial to their budgets. Right here in front of the gentleman who questioned first. My name is Allison Slater. I actually work for a contracting company in D.C. area that does an unusually good job at coordinating and meshing and mashing open source information for a wide variety of clientele. Um, and before that, I was an investigative reporter, so I have uh, an unusual take on this. That goes back to the idea of crowdsourcing and the idea of using government in a different way, creating data as a way to create innovative solutions for government. Um, could you comment on that just a little bit and where you think the Obama administration is going to be taking that and the whole idea of classified information, how that might be changing under the new administration? Hi. <laughs> I think you almost had two parts, though. The, the, la the last part is, um, um, uh, let me do the last part and then be thinking about the first. Um, classified information, I, I can only tell you what I hope they do. I have no clue on what they're going to do until 
we see them operate. Um, but this alphabet soup of sensitive but unclassified control, unclassified information, and you name the whole list of these um, various forms of new kinds of restrictions. We have got to put an end to that. We have a structure today. It is a classification system. If it is to be held secret, it should go through that, and it needs to be re overhauled to make sure that the right information gets classified. We also have, under the Freedom of Information Act, exemptions from disclosure when it's appropriate for exemption. We don't need this hybrid in the middle of things that are sensitive, but maybe they're available, maybe they're not, and then the agencies are confused, and so they withhold it. We have got to get away from that. And if we're going to continue that language, it has to be abundantly clear under the Obama administration to the agencies that that information is subject to disclosure in the same way our system is for other information. If it isn't available under FOIA, it can't be available under FOIA, or it can't be available under classification, that's fine. So on the classification system and pseudo-classification, I think the Obama administration has got to come in with a swift and clear message about problems with overclassification, about problems with pseudo-classification, and problems of reclassifying things that were declassified. That's in summary. Um, to go to the crowdsourcing part of your question, I think what you're describing is what uh, Don Tapscott and Anthony Williams called Wikinomics uh, in their book by that name. Uh, and Ed, this is what you're sort of talking about when you're talking about uh, citizen participation in government. And I don't know that the Obama administration is really looking at this seriously. I haven't seen any indication of that. One thing that would indicate in that direction is that uh, the president-elect has said that whenever, and I'm not sure what I think about this yet, but we'll see how it works out, that whenever Congress sends him a bill to be signed, uh, he's going to put it up on the White House website for at least 48 hours and take comments from the public before signing or vetoing it, uh, which is sort of a crowdsourcing kind of wiki way of, of doing things. I'm curious to see if he is going to sign anything on Inauguration Day, right? The idea is that he's going to sign the, the big stimulus. We'll see if he puts it up for 48 hours or not. <laughs> A little hard. <laughs> well, one, of the, one of the important issues with, with crowdsourcing is, um, in a lot of cases, what you're really looking for is the one person or a few people out there who look at the information and have, the, uh, have a really valuable insight. Um, often a lot of people look at it, they say, uh-huh, there it is, um, but someone really gets a great idea. Uh, and one of the challenges is how you find that great idea, how you find that needle in the haystack of all of the, yeah, this is a good idea, no, this is a bad idea comments that you're likely to get. Um, and um, this is not just an open problem for government. It is, it is generally in the, uh, in the crowdsourcing world. Um, and I'm optimistic that over time we'll figure out better ways of letting that stuff bubble to the top. I, I, I would just want to tack on to that. I do think, um, from my understanding of the transition phase, there are discussions about the participatory component that you're talking about of how do you improve the quality of government itself. It is being done outside of the transparency transition, folks. It is being done by those who are dealing with um, uh, performance management and performance measurement. And the, and the whole notion is can we shift from just simply a rating system to one that actually involves the public in giving feedback about quality of programs. That's a very different – it fits much more in Ed's model – of this kind of interactive system. And I would say the piece I mentioned about change.gov and your seat at the table, 
boy, that's just really different than anything we've seen. Um, if that becomes the governing style, then I think we are going to see what you're suggesting of ways to improve government coming from all different directions, not only from inside government, from outside. It's going to be fascinating if they do that. Let's get over here. Third row, gentleman with salt and pepper hair, yellow tie, which you can't see, microphone carrier. I'm Dan Metcalf of American University, Washington College of Law. And this is for Gary. First, thank you for the nod to the collaboration on government secrecy. Uh, it's an academic entity that couldn't be possible without support from people such as yourself. And I can tell you that at our advisory board meeting tomorrow, we will allocate an additional dessert to you. <laughs> <laughs> Just coincidence and timing. But more seriously, uh, you, you mention and draw much attention to, for good reason, the uh, remarkable announcement from John Podesta just last week of the uh, seat-at-the-table mechanism. And it's only a few days old, obviously. But I wonder, do you have a basis, and this picks up a little bit on what you just said a few moments ago, do you have a, a basis for imagining that mechanism carrying over in any particular way, or even in general, beyond the transition period? I, I have encouraged them to, to do that. I don't know how you do that because just in the transparency recommendation, there are more than five pages of – five web pages of different recommendations from various groups. It's an enormous sum of material. On ours, on the transparency one, there were about 150-some-odd comments, and they were all very lengthy and thoughtful comments. Who's going to review this? Um, that's the question I would have is I, I don't – I'm not excited about the interactive technology if it's not being used. The, the tool is primarily because I want government to be better. I want it to be more responsive and more accountable. So it seems to me, Dan, the question in my mind is how do they structure whether it's a White House, whether it's agencies. I, I don't know how they grapple with this kind of uh, interactive model that you were – advocating ed it's it's not a, just a technology question now it is really a structural it's a governmental shift that's a transformative issue i only hope it happens but i think all of us are going to have to be a little bit patient that is we're going to have to tolerate mistakes there this isn't going to get done right the first time and i think if we all hold together in some kind of unity voice on this i think we can get it right ultimately but it's going to be a little experimentation yeah. Oh, I think it will be. Let's go up in the in the back there on the left side, on my left. You're right. The gentleman's standing now. Thank you. I'm Arnold King, and my, my question to you, Mr. Bass, is uh, as, uh, what is uh, you know, OMB directly, uh, what's that, what was selected by President Obama, right? My question is what, how he, how he President Obama got Going to uh, going to coordinate, talk to our uh, the new assistant director, new director of OMB about uh, about technology. In fact, how he going to delegate with all government agencies about technology as far as uh, as far as the government concerned? Because government get technology is twenty century outdated, especially uh, OPN, where I'm not sure what kind of technology OPN has. That's my point. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think the designate for the OMB director is Peter Orzag, who 
um, I would characterize as a technocrat. Um, he knows tax and budget inside and out. He's uh, an expert. I think some of the things we're talking about today would be very new to him. Um, and that may be another reason why we need to have this chief technology or transparency officer or something to complement um, his, his skills. I will say the Office of Management and Budget is I'm, – I'm dubious about whether that agency has the capability of being the lead for the kinds of things we're talking about. They, first of all, they don't have contract authority. Secondly, they don't have the technology skills that we're talking about. And thirdly, they're perceived by most agencies as the no man, you know, on everything. So here we're talking about someone who says yes. <laughs> we're trying to get people to do things. So I, I don't know how this is going to get done. I'm very concerned that our government structure is not well suited for the kinds of things we're talking about. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm just acknowledging your points and saying we're going to have to be very vigilant, all of us, about this. Over here. HHS's tracking accountability and government grant system uh, was online and publicly accessible to uh, on the web since 1995. Um, prior to the passage of, uh, you know, uh, FATA, USA spending, and other uh, streamlining initiatives like PL 106, 107 for grants, HHS was very committed and continues to be committed to increasing the transparency of its reporting, particularly since it's the largest grant-making agency in government. So I just wanted to at least assure, and I, I recognize also working at OMB, that there is a lot, there, there's a lot that the government needs to do to actually put this in place. But I did want to um, add that part of the effort that uh, we've continued to do through uh, supporting OMB in the implementation of USA spending, we recently completed the subaward pilot, which was a component of the law. And part of that, um, part of our goal in doing that and investing our own resources was because we are committed to tracking down uh, the dollars that we're giving to states for Medicaid, for Medicare, um, wherever the law permits. So there are things happening in government um, because the government is interested in being able to make this information accessible to the public. But I did want to also just add to the gentleman's comment that we find that uh, uh, HHS is a, is a massive agency with many different uh, sub-agencies, including FDA, NIH. And, uh, but we find that keeping a public website on our spending is helpful for our own executive queries, our own reporting. If there's a secretary, anybody who goes out across the state who wants to find out at any point in time how much money we spent in a particular congressional district, we want to be able to provide him that information. 
So there, there are many, there are many uh, uses that uh, we find with public websites, and we're deeply committed to continuing this effort. I agree, and I know that you didn't want to hear about the funding issue, but it continues to be an issue for agencies. When it comes to data collection, I just want to kind of remind everyone that policy drives technology so that when you're talking about existing data and existing systems and putting them to a, a, you know one portal if you have different definitions for those different systems or you have different definitions for the the forms in which you are collecting the data you're you're, you're from the onset the data quality is going to be a problem so there's a lot of work that the government has to do and i think that we're deeply committed to working with the public on solutions and i would be interested i think um, from my perspective, and I think a, a lot of managers across uh, government, in finding solutions to sort of, I wouldn't say backtracking, but finding ways where we can standardize policy and then move forward from there. Um, well, I'm, I'm just so glad you said that because it, it, not only the content of what you said, but I think it's a reminder to those of us outside of government how many dedicated civil servants there are in the government and it responds to the question you asked about sustainability. If we unleash the various people like that to actually fulfill the kind of vision we're talking about, we're going to have a better government. So, I, you know, I thank you for doing the work you've done, not only on the specific message you just sent, but for generally. I think that's critical. And, and we all forget about all of you who are out there doing, doing great work. And you'd be great contributors in the private sector, too. <laughs> we're, we're, we're just about out of time. Let's take one more question. The gentleman in the third row right here. Bill, Bill Klein, Washington, D.C. Uh, I'll let you tell me if I'm too naive or, or this is a silly question, not quite relevant, but I'm wondering in this financial meltdown we're in now, what is it about databases, even though they would be humongous, that makes it so impossible to find out what the toxic assets are in all these financial things that people have been playing with? It seems to me you should be able to back your way through all the transactions and go back to the original and find out what they are, but apparently that's absolutely impossible. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's outrageous. Here we, the, 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 the acronym for bailout is called TARP, right? Everyone's heard TARP? You just had the, the Government Accountability Office just put out a report and saying, we can't even tell you whether it's working or not working because we can't – the information that's available is so limited. I mean, it's absurd. We should have today the ability to – a transparent system not only to know who the contractors are that are doing the work for the Treasury Department and all the potential conflicts that may exist with those contractors – but the assets that have now been purchased through the banks, we're not doing the illiquid assets anymore. We're doing now buyouts. We should have the information about the warrants. We should have information about the preferred stock options. And we should be able to see this and make our own judgments about its viability as an approach. We're not getting that today. There's a hearing in Congress this, after, this morning or this afternoon. I've lost track. This morning, thank you, that will uh, specifically raise this, including through the Congressional Oversight Panel. I think this is one of the most premier issues, one of the most important that the Obama administration, when they come in, they've got to get a handle on this thing. We're talking about large sums of money, well beyond the $700 billion bailout. It includes the money that the Fed has put in. It includes other monies that have come out. We're talking literally trillions of dollars. 
And we can disagree whether it's right or wrong, and that's a fair discussion. But at least we should have the information on which we can make our arguments and all be talking the same data. Ed or Jerry? I think, Ed, you know, I don't have anything to add to that, really. Um, I think the information exists. Uh, people who have it are, um, uh, are, are probably hoarding it. Um, if you have information about assets that you yourself own um, and some of them are bad, you have an obvious incentive to hold back some of the bad news. Um, and I think there's a lot of that going on. Let me close, um, first of all, by thanking you all and thanking you for being here. But I want to ask a, a final question of each of our panelists. Um, what's the ask? What specifically do you want um, to be done, and who do you want to do it? What agency do you talk to? Who do you, say, who do you talk to? What do you say? What's the most important step forward from here? Jerry, you went first, so I'll make you go first. Okay, that well. Easy softball question. I, you know, I, I could go broad, but I'm going to go really narrow interest here. Um, and I'm really interested in regulatory data. I think with spending, we've done a lot. Uh, we had a lot of progress there. I think we need to start on regulatory data. And what I would ask for is for that ABA report that Gary was on the panel to, to be read thoroughly and those recommendations be, recommendations be implemented. And uh, what that means is, is sort of decentralizing the data, making sure it's all out there, uh, and making it available in, in a structured format. Uh, Along with the things that Jerry is asking for, uh, I'd like to apply the same agenda to the judicial branch. Uh, there's a lot of information about what happens in court, what has happened in court that's not available. It's locked up in proprietary systems. We need to get that information out so people have better visibility into the, uh, into the uh, judicial system. Gary. Well, whenever I'm asked for one, I always have five. <laughs> um, but I, actually, I won't do that. I'm just going to have one, and I'm going to change it from the the kind of discussion we're having to something I'm asking of you. Um, it, it's, a, uh, again, uh, a story I had. How many of you have ridden the Metro? Okay, you all know, you know, if you burp, you go to jail or whatever it is, right? You know, you're not supposed to talk on the Metro. Well, I was in that one of those situations where I was going out towards um, the airport, and, um, you know, I bury my head in the newspaper, you know, to make like I'm reading. And sure enough, I, someone on the other end of the car screamed, Hey, Gary! And I went, oh, please don't be me. So I kept reading, you know, hey, Gary. And I turned around and go, hey. And I kept reading. She goes, this is a couple years ago. Hey, did you hear what they did on nursing home reform? And I'm oh, please. <laughs> and then she starts going on about nursing home reform and this legislation and what they're doing in Congress. And all these people are getting off and talking. As we got off at Crystal City, and they're talking about nursing home reform. And I, got, I realized this is pretty cool. I got off at the end and I said to her, I said, do you do this often? She goes, oh, yes, you should get them in an elevator. Then they got no place to go. <laughs> well, I think we got to get them in the elevator. That's, we've now, our job, our job, and the ask I'm, I'm putting to you all instead of the government is we have the opportunity to claim the most, we want the most open, honest, and accountable government ever. That should be our message. It should unify us. And we get them in the elevator, and we don't let them leave till we get there. Join me in thanking our panelists, Ed Felton, Gary Bass, Jerry Brito. And thank you for coming. Your reward is sandwiches upstairs in the Winter Garden. Please join us for lunch. Thanks again.